think about God is the most important thing about you. Most important thing about you is it's not where you work, what your title is, it's in your bank account. That's not the most important thing. Most important thing about you is what you think about God. Now, we have been in a journey stepping into another world, an otherworldly journey of Psalm 23. And Psalm 23 teaches us how to think about God. Psalm 23 is a pattern of thinking. And when your mind becomes saturated with Psalm 23, just a new attitude, a new outlook, and a new life are the result. Think about that. 55 Hebrew words have that much power because they're the Word of God. And they give us hope, and they give us faith, and they offer a, a, a positive grounded otherworldly perspective and the central message that we've been learning in psalm 23 is this for you are with me for you are with me and that's why we've been trying to memorize this psalm here in our journey on psalm 23 so are you ready for this next verse that we're memorizing huh let's do it okay Psalm 23, here we go. We're going we're gonna to do it like we did last week. We're going to show you the answers to the quiz. And then we're going to take away a few of those answers. And then we're just going to be bold. All right? All right, here we go. Oops, here's the answers. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. All right, let's just stop right there. That's good. I, it's kind of tricky, isn't it? Some of us learn for thou art with me or for you art with me. Which is it, Pastor? I'll let you make the call on that. <laughs> All right. Okay, let's do it again now. We're going to take away some of those words. Are you ready? The Lord, what's the first word there? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm the leader. We're going that way. All right. Here we go. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Okay, that's good. All right, now we're going to just dive in. Ready? Take a deep breath. 
Here we go. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Yay! Huh? All right. God be praised. My goodness. Wonderful, wonderful. We're almost there. We'll be there within a few weeks. So. So today we just continue with verse 5, Psalm 23, verse 5. And uh, if you have your Bibles, you may turn to Psalm 23, verse 5. You'll find the book of Psalms in the middle of your Bible. And then chapter 23, verse 5. Now I'd like to tag this message, inebriated with the joy of the Lord. All right? You probably never thought you'd hear your pastor say inebriated. So anyway, well, it depends on what you're inebriated with. And today, our message title is, say this with me, inebriated with the joy of the Lord. You'll see how that plays out in just a moment. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This is God's word. So a few weeks ago, I gave you the spoiler alert of that 1998 movie, Saving Private Ryan. Told you the end of it. I did not tell you the beginning of it. I told you the last 10 minutes of the movie, but I didn't tell you the first 10 minutes of the movie. It's, it's, it's a depiction of the invasion of Normandy Beach on D-Day. I mean, Hitler's army was waiting. And it was a lethal, gruesome, successful battle. Kind of the beginning of the end. Now I want you to use your imagination for just a minute. And just picture a version of that movie where on that very day, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces, decides to host a beachside picnic right there in the war zone. On that very day, D-Day, fine foods, best wine, delightful conversation, general-like D-Day. You probably never had that picture in your mind before. And why would you? I mean, who would do that? Had that actually happened, I mean, you would have to assume one of two things about Eisenhower. Either one, 
he was insanely irresponsible. Or number two, incomprehensibly indestructible. I mean, who would do that? I know who would do that. Verse 5. You prepare, say that with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I know who would do that. God does that. God does that. He's doing it right now. These verses both inform us and invite us. They inform us that we will have our share of Normandy Beach moments. We we will face the hard and difficult times like we've never known. We'll feel like we're in a war. These verses inform us. These verses also invite us. For there in that same deadly space, church family, God has something for us. In the space where you would least likely expect it, God has has something for us, has a gift for us. He has a seat at a table His table for us next to Him. Psalm 23, 5. So here's our big idea. In the crushing pressure of my overwhelming enemies, God offers inebriating joy. That's the word for today. In the crushing pressure of my overwhelming enemies, I mean on that beach side of stress and pressure, there in that environment, God's peaceful joy reigns. Not even there on that beach is outside the sovereign joy of God. That's what these verses say. That's what that verse says. Hmm. Two, now, two truths are in verse 5, and we're going to unpack them. One of them has to do with overwhelming enemies. Overwhelming enemies. And then, and then the other truth has to do with inebriating joy. All right? And listen. The joy... The joy only tastes better on the beach of overwhelming enemies. So let's talk about those overwhelming enemies for a minute. All right? Are you with me? Say amen. All right. Truth number one. In my crushing pressure of overwhelming enemies. um, God's flock is never short of enemies. I mean, after you read verse 4, you may be tempted to think, well, I made it through the valley. Made it through the valley. It's home free. Wait, where did these enemies come from? Wait, why why here? Why now? 
why not, oh, and by the way, while you're in the midst of the valley of the shadow of, no, that's not what it says. You're through the valley, and then why here, why now? I mean, we kind of know that, right? Last summer, you're thinking, oh, good, we got through COVID. We're going to be, everything's going to be okay. Whoop, then there was Delta. Oh, I got, got through Delta, that's good. And then Thanksgiving Day, we got the announcement, oh, there's Omicron. Okay, now what's next? I don't know, but there will be something. There's always enemies. This side of heaven, there's always enemies. My, it's like my friend in Ohio, Ken. Uh, he, he, says, he says, it's always something. And then he tells me to respond. See, he likes to have both sides of the conversation sometimes. And that's why I like him, because I'm like that. But he, here it is. Let me teach you what Ken taught me. Someone says, it's always something. Your response is, generally is. Okay, let's try that. It's always something. Yeah. God's flock is never short of enemies. There's always enemies. Verse 5 literally reads, before the face of my enemies. In other words, David can see their faces. That's not common in modern warfare these days, right? We've got drones and missiles and monitors, and it's really depersonalized. But David saw his enemies' faces. He could see his enemy's face. In, in the wilderness, when he was a young shepherd boy, David saw the faces of lions and bears, the predators of his flock. In the valley of Elah, he saw the face of Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. In 1 Samuel 18, David saw the faces of the Philistines whom he defeated. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Oh, and then after that, David saw the face of Saul who was jealous because David had slain his thousands and he only his, his, his tens of thousands, you, you know. Oh, and then David saw the face of the Amalekites at Ziklag in 1 Samuel 30. Oh, and then David as king saw the face of his son Absalom who staged a coup against his father. And, and by the way, I wonder if Psalm 23.5 was a memory of David from 2 Samuel 17, 2 Samuel 17, 2 Samuel 17, verses 27 to 29, where David, on the run from Absalom and his faithful followers, uh, they went to Mahanaim, Mahanaim, and there these exhausted uh, refugees were catered a feast. By loyal allies, 2 Samuel 17, 28 and 29. Beds and basins and earthen vessels and wheat and barley and flour and parts grain and beans and lentils and honey and curd and sheep and cheese from the herds of, uh, for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. You see, there's always enemies. There's always enemies Opponents and provisions, predators and supplies. God's flock will always have enemies. Not just for David, for us, church family. This side of heaven, we will never be free from enemies. <laughs> for some of us right here, right now, this very moment, this very moment, for you, 
is a harbor. It's a haven of peace because tomorrow morning you've got to go back to a toxic work environment. You have to return to a toxic colleague, a toxic boss, who for some reason has made it their mission to make your life miserable. And each Sunday afternoon or each Sunday evening, you gotta mentally armor up for the next day or the next week. And you'd quit if you could, but you can't. Um, your enemy might be your former. Everything is a fight. Everything, every conversation, every plan, every financial decision, every school schedule, uh, rides, parent-teacher, everything, everything. Your enemy might be an abuser. And you are still healing from the trauma that he or she has caused. And it's not lost on me that your enemy may be a previous church led by a toxic pastor. Right? Your enemy might be someone who ridicules you for your faith in Christ. You know? And you're not obnoxious about sharing your faith. You're transparent, and now you're a target. And you know, as Americans, we should expect freedom of religion. As Christians, we should not expect freedom from ridicule. Didn't Jesus say this? He said in Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. There's always enemies. There's always enemies. My most prevalent enemy lives within me the flesh I'm not talking about the anatomy of my skin I'm talking about that inner insurgent mindset at work against the will of God that's what I'm talking about I'm talking about a war of desire battling within my soul that seeks to divert my attention from God I, I read this week uh, about how the Department of Interior had to relocate some wild horses, uh, some mustangs, uh, due to the drought in the American West. And so how do you corral mustangs? How do you do that? You know how you do that? You insert, I didn't know this, but this is what you do. You insert a Judas horse. And you put the Judas horse with the Mustangs, to lure the herd to the desired location. And so the Judas horse makes the other horses want to chase it. And I read that and I thought, that's the flesh. That's, that's, that's the flesh. The flesh is my Judas horse. The flesh is this rebel mind that deliberately leads and lures my life away from God. And you name the corral, the Judas horse will take you there. It'll take you to chase lust. It'll take you to chase gambling. It'll chase you to, uh, to, toward gossip. It'll make you chase materialism, alcoholism, abusive power, a self-righteous spirit. 
You're just following a horse. You have no idea where it's headed. Those Mustangs in Nevada, they didn't didn't think, wait, this could be a trap. No, they're just following the herd. They're just following the herd. Paul says in Galatians 5, 16 and 17, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to one another, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Listen to me. Spiritual warfare is not a figurative term in the Bible. Paul made it plain. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Listen, these enemies are no featherweights. And your greatest vulnerability is not your profession of weakness, it's your delusion of strength. And without God, we don't stand a chance. So I propose to you the anti-Psalm 23. Have you heard it? It's the anti-Psalm 23. Uh, The late David Pallison, a uh, a believer in Christ, a clinical psychologist, was meditating on Psalm 23 and its message, and then you know, its meaning became even clearer as he drafted the anti-Psalm 23. Here, here's how it sounds. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist. I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really my friends? Other people use me for their own ends I can't really trust anyone no one has my back no one is really for me except me and I'm so much all about me sometimes it's sickening I belong to no one except myself my cup is never quite full enough I'm left empty disappointment follows me all the days of my life will I just be obliterated into nothingness will I be alone forever homeless free falling into the void Sartre said hell is other people I have to add hell is also myself it's a death and then I die the anti-psalm 23 listen to me something bad gets the last word when what you live for isn't God God's flock's never short of enemies I don't know about you right now, but I could use some good news. Yeah, well, let's go there. 
You see, God's flock is never short of enemies. And God's flock is never short of joy. You, verse 5, you, you, the you is God. You prepare a table before me. Literally, you arrange a table. God personally arranges a table before my face in the presence of the faces of my enemies. God does that. He doesn't delegate it out to the angels. He does it himself. He, he sets the table himself. He puts out the knives and the forks and the spoons and the plates and the napkins. He prepares the feast. He makes the meal himself. He grows the grapes and crushes the grapes and extracts the juice. He grows the olives, crushes the olives, extracts the oil from the olives. He makes the fresh bread. Oh, fresh bread right there. Mmm. Ripe fruit. The juice just trickles down your cheeks. Cheeses, dates, nuts, meats. Oh, my goodness. The, the pasture has become a banquet. Huh? The shepherd has become a host. The sheep have become guests. You see that? Oh. Oh, so the, uh, God, God's... God's flock is never short of enemies. God's flock is never short of, of, of joy, never short of provisions. The provisions of the banquet signal protection. Because you see, according to the customs of David's culture, the honored guest was safe because the host was obliged to protect the guests at all costs. So sitting down to eat and drink in the midst of dangerous enemies is a marvelous picture of safety and security in a place as lethal as normandy beach you arrange a table and you anoint my head with oil if you be in christ your salvation is as secure as a banquet feast in normandy beach because god is at the head of the table that's why Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That's why he said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.8, the Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end. This isn't a blank check for careless, presumptuous living. It's a blank check for confidence, for assurance, for peace, for joy, otherworldly joy. Why would I ever return to the unrescued life? <laughs> Look at what I have. God has arranged this. And God anoints. God arranges and God anoints. Literally, literally, the word anoint with oil is the, is the verb to make fat, to make fat. God, our shepherd host, refreshes the dusty, battle-weary pilgrim with perfumed oil. Uh, Proverbs 15:30. Good news makes fat the bones. God says, "Ah, we're going to get fat today." 
I have a meal for you. And uh, it, it, the anointing is not just ceremonial. It's for healing. It's for therapy. God, you are my good news. God, you are my joy. You restore me. You put fat on my bones. Thank you, God. You arrange a table. You anoint my head. And, and because you do this, my cup overflows, overflows. Um, literally, literally, my cup is saturation. My cup is saturated. It's a saturated cup. It's a cup of saturation. Uh, literally, my cup is inebriation. There we go. Inebriated by the joy of the Lord. David is inebriated with the joy of the Lord. What does it mean to be inebriated? It means to be under the influence of that which inebriates you. So in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, the Apostle Paul would say, Do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. He says that because being inebriated with wine, you're under the control of a depressant, which causes cloudy thinking, impaired cognitive function, a danger to self and others, etc., etc. Instead, he says, be filled with the Spirit. So under the influence of the Spirit, you have the produce of the Spirit, love, joy. Joy. So life is no depressant. Life is a stimulant with the Spirit's joy. Your vision is not cloudy, it's clearer. Your thinking is sharp. You see the world for what it is when the Holy Spirit dominates your life and your heart. And, and so you're not an impairment to others. You're a resource to others. Because you're under the influence of Jesus' spirit. And so you're equipped to live an elevated way of life. That's the invitation of the cup of saturation. The flock may never be short of enemies, but that's not the whole story. The flock is never short of provisions. And the point of verse 5 is not that life is just one big happy Christian party. The point is that wh wherever my enemies are, I'm untouchable. Because of who is at the head of the table? God is there. Think about this picture. David is painting this serene picture of a banquet before the faces of vicious enemies. And the world, the, the world wants a God who brandishes a sword, not a butter knife. But David saw that even when he was most vulnerable, when he saw that, you know, today could be the last day here on earth and every gives, everything gives way, he still says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And why? Why? Because I believe, I know, I am confident that the God I worship is the God who is in the food service business. At the most uncommon places, war zones, which means I will not only survive this threat or this sickness or this loss or this funeral, I will have all that I need and more. The world looks and thinks I'm weak and poor and helpless and sad and sorry, but when God is at the head of the table, there is a real otherworldly wealth that the flesh cannot touch. You know the American way of signaling wealth? 
is to purchase and display expensive stuff. That's how we Americans do it. Which assumes isolation and distance from the community. But in biblical times, when you wanted the community to know that you had acquired wealth, you didn't buy stuff. Instead, you hosted a meal with three times as much food on the table as the guests could eat. And that's how God has shown his lavish love to us. Regardless of who's watching, he doesn't care. He offers his love anyway. And do you know why? Because he is love. He is love. I'm thinking of that uh, aged pastor and theologian who was brilliant and asked one time what the highest, highest theological peak he had ever scaled in all of his studies of books and languages. And what's the highest theological peak that you've ever scaled? And he paused for a minute, this aged pastor, and then he softly sang, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You know it? Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Some of us need to get reacquainted with the weight of God's smile over you. What I'm trying to say, church family, is that God likes you. And that's why he's inviting you to the table. He delights in you. He smiles at you. And not because he sees someone smarter, taller, better looking, or holier standing just behind you. He looks at each redeemed child in the face and says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your good Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. No one forced God to adopt you. And here's the deeper truth. (laughs) And I can say this because of the death, burial, and resurrection of our shepherd king. Our resurrected shepherd who is now the host of the table. Our resurrected shepherd who has arranged a bounty for his congregation. Our resurrected shepherd who's at the head of the table. He's laughing. He's feasting. He's enjoying himself because you're at the table. Laughing and feasting in the presence of my enemies. This resurrected shepherd now turns to me. I'm sitting next to him, aren't you? This resurrected shepherd now turns to me and says, Randall, why don't you invite your enemies to the table? What? 
No! Ask them. See if they'd like to join us. There's plenty to go around, you know. After all, you used to be an enemy. Is that not the vision of this church? To wage war with strange weapons. God does that, you know. In the Bible, God fights Pharaoh with frogs, gnats, and boils. God defeated the Midianite army with clay pots and torches. And strangest of all, God defeated sin and death using a tree. So it should be no surprise to us that Jesus calls us to take up forks and spoons to fight back Satan and his legions. Oh yeah, if verse 5 teaches us anything, it's this. Hospitality is war. Our king has invited us to dine at his table as royal sons and daughters. And nothing snubs an enemy and declares that we are untouchable like sitting down to dinner in the middle of a war. Jesus invites us to share in his eternal victory through his death, burial, and resurrection and communion signals to the power of darkness that our victory is certain, their defeat is imminent. But if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, all things are new. And Christ has willed his church to advance his kingdom through dinner tables. I'm the first believers in the book of Acts daily broke bread in their homes. Remember when we talked about Paul and Cornelius feasting together? And it's at the dinner table that the peace of Christ visibly reigns. And in our country, with our history, how are we celebrating the victory of our king? Are your meals bizarre to the world? Are we sitting down to eat with people this world says we should never get along with? Are we dining with people from other ethnicities and nations and social locations that apart from Christ we would not? God, our shepherd host, made forks and spoons and pans and pots and plates the weapons of war against the darkness. Hospitality is a fight. And Satan will convince you that you don't have time to share your table with others, work schedules, sports practices, fatigue, or money constraints. There's always going to be a reason not to invite others over for dinner. But hospitality is worth the fight. And at the end of the day, when you see a kitchen stacked with dirty silverware and piles of plates and a sink overflowing with greasy pans and pots, may you see some well-used weapons against the darkness. So church family, I charge us, make your ladles and your casserole dishes and your cookie sheets as trusty sidearms in the fight to expand the kingdom. Amen? Amen. Well, I'm about done. And I'll be done after I tell you this story about my four-year-old grandson, Elias. He became four last weekend, and we celebrated a banquet feast. It was uh, practically an all-you-could-eat Jimmy John's fest. That's what he wanted. He wanted sandwiches and a mountain of potato chips. And When it came time for the cake, it was brought in candle, singing happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday, Elias, happy birthday to you. 
his six-year-old sister, Audrey, helped him blow out the candles. And then she said to him, well, what do you wish, Eli? What do you wish? And he paused for a moment and he said, looking at the cake, I wish to eat this. In a moment, we're going to share communion. The band's going to come up here now. And we're going to sing a song. And we're going to have a feast. The cup of the Lord representing his blood. For the life is in the blood. And in the bread representing his body. And we will eat the Passover feast of the Lamb. And we will become inebriated with the cup of the Lord's joy. And why? Because he wishes, our Lord wishes for us to eat this. Amen? Let's stand and let's sing together.